welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, hello everyone, uh, and welcome to the February 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum, Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. Here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research that's happening in medical education. A great big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of the science of EMS education. I'm Megan Corey, and I'm here with Katie O'Connor and Alex Tremblay and Michael Caduce. And probably joining us in a bit is Dr. Bill Toon. Uh, today, we're going to discuss this article published this year in JSEP Open. Remember, open access. Yay, you can get this one uh, without a paywall. Uh, Defining Priorities for Emergency Medical Services Education Research, a modified Delphi study. Joining us today, too, are two of the study's co-authors, Dr. Scott Lancaster and Stephanie Ashford, and we'll be talking to them in just a few minutes. We want to thank you all for joining us today, and we also want to remind you that during this uh, podcast, you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments, talk to each other. We can bring in questions through the Q&A as well as we go. Uh, as we go through this. So remember, if you miss any of these journal clubs, you can always replay past episodes from our very own YouTube channel. And you can see that youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. Remember, if you like anything you hear today, you can tag us on Facebook or one of your favorite social media uh, channels. A quick reminder before we begin, too, we have a call for abstracts in the area of EMS research, uh, any of the areas of EMS research, clinical operations, education, and this is coming up on June 30th this year. So you can find all that information on our website at prehospitalcare.org. So let's dive into the study. This is defining priorities for the EMS education research, a modified Delphi study. And let's just bring in our authors. We have two again here, uh, Dr. Scott Lancaster and Stephanie Ashford, and we're and soon to be doctor, I should say, Stephanie Ashford. And uh, we're, we'd like, I'd like first to start and have you introduce yourselves. And let's start with you, um, Dr. Lancaster, if you can introduce yourself and just tell us, you know, how did you get into EMS education research? All right. So thanks for joining everyone. Um, I got actually into research through the old FISDAP research summits um, that the PCRF was part of. Um, and Dave Page. So probably six or seven years ago, I went to my first VizDAP research summit, and then I made a habit out of going pretty much two years on, one year off until COVID hit. I was part of the COVID cohort of VizDAP when it was all online. Um, and I did. that's kind of what got me into going to get my PhD and get more involved in research and learn more about methodology. But it started with VizDAP for me. That's great. Stephanie, And how about you? Um, my primary job right now is in quality and safety. So I deal with all of our clinical data and, you know, linking to patient outcomes. And so I'm very interested in that arm of our field in general. And, and I'm a teacher in my soul. So when the opportunity asked came up to um, participate in educational research, I said, absolutely. Um, I want to help contribute to the field of knowledge on that. And so that's where my role was in this was to help look at the numbers and, and stuff. So let me pick at this a little bit and ask, we, we all tend to start as EMS workers, right? As, as people working with patients in the field, how did, what changed that made you go from, you know, patients to EMS research and EMS education. You, you had mentioned that the FISDAP Research Summit and research summits like this now um, are really inviting more people to the table um, as researchers, but going from practitioner to, was it practitioner to educator to researcher? Yes. For me, I was a, I was a teacher 
first. I went to school to be an anthropologist because I wanted to be Indiana Jones and there's not a big job market for that. (laughs) And so while I was working, while I was finishing my degree, I was teaching. Anthropologists teach a lot. Um, They teach anatomy and physiology. So I was teaching, but, you know, I'm sure that some of the educators on the call can attest to this, that education doesn't pay particularly well. And um, I made more money as a practitioner of EMS. And so at some point I wanted to marry the two passions together. And Baxter Larman and Dave Page were sort of my entry into that because they're both just really inspiring individuals. Mm-hmm. If you've ever just sat in a room with them, they'll make you want to do it. And I did a I did a FISDAP PCRF, but I also did an ESO PCRF. And mm-hmm. so just yeah, it's just a invigorating experience to be with a bunch of your fellow EMS nerds. I guess it's worth mentioning here too. There's an upcoming deadline for the ESO. Um summit, I guess you would call it a research uh, summit on, I believe it's March 4th is the deadline to submit an application for that. And I believe you can get that on our uh, website. I can find that out and we can put it into the yeah. chat area for folks, but I, I don't have any, any interests with ESO because we don't even use their product, but they run a great show. They're perfect for an entry level provider educator who's just wanting to stick their toe into research they uh, will walk you through the entire process with mentorship and statisticians and everyone to help you bring your vision to life great point so we all have curiosity and i think curiosity is the first thing you need to bring to the table your questions and then you need mentoring and that's what these things offer as mentors so i think it's it's important um, i think it's worth mentioning too we mentioned the uh, national association of ms educators as well if you're looking for uh, people who are um, you know, just waiting to mentor people, uh, PCRF, the NMC, there are definitely uh, folks out there uh, that can provide you with some quick advice and, and that kind of thing. Okay, let's get to this um, study then. So this is, uh, the, I just copied the research aims right out of the paper. This is the the purpose of the study. The aims of the, of the study was to identify and rank the top 10 research priorities related to EMS education in the U.S., um, I'm curious how you came to this. So in 2022, we actually had Dr. Panchal and and several of the authors, I think, on this study that we're talking about today were also uh, Dr. Leggio, um, Kim McKenna. They were also on this other study that was related to EMS education research priorities during COVID-19, which was a very, uh, um, you know, a similar thing. They did a modified Delphi, but they were looking at kind of leadership um, their participants were leaders in from different organizations, and and they did a, sort of a similar thing. So why this study and why this question? What led you to to do this? And Dr. Lancaster, why don't you address this one? Sure. So this study idea actually came out of the National Association of EMS Educators Research Committee. Um, they had been looking at trying to find if there was an EMS re- educational research agenda in the United States done. There was one published in Australia and one out of Ireland that caught that research committee's attention. Um, and they decided that, NAMSI decided that they wanted to fund a research project to build an educational research agenda in the United States. So the aim of the study really came from NAMSI. NAMSI approached myself and Dr. Crow to see if we would be co-PIs on a research study. And that's where the whole idea came from. And then Stephanie, how did you come to joining the team? Uh, I do a lot of work with Remley uh, for quality and safety. And and my address that I believe was part of the initial conversations. Mm-hmm. I work with both of them on a regular basis through National Association of EMS Physicians. I teach a bunch of stuff for them. And so they just grabbed me and said, hey, you know how to do math? Come, come hither. <laughs> oh, everyone should hear that. We, we, we have somebody who says, you know how to do math. Um, because there's a lot, that's one of the math anxiety and statistics anxiety is one of the things that's cited in, uh, among people who are thinking about research, but they think research must mean I have to know all of this stuff. That's why we have people like Stephanie and Remley. So, um, and Tony, Fernandez. Okay, so now you have this this goal, this uh, group that said we need to do this study. And and now on, on this um, podcast, we like to talk to people who are, who are thinking about designing 
research? And how do you then say, how do we get at this question? So you have a research question, what's the best method to use? And you use the modified Delphi um, and then you had to decide on which participants were going to be appropriate for this. So how did you go about that? And maybe Alex, um, this is kind of your one of your areas too, like you this type of study. what what um, how do you begin to to select this kind of methodology? And maybe the researchers can answer this first. Sure. So um, we decided to go with the modified Delphi primarily because we were looking to get an expert consensus. We didn't want to just have a quantitative data piece where people answered a survey and we gave out answers. We wanted to go through the process of drilling down. And part of doing this, this type of uh, research study was what I used, what I was referring to as like the cattle call or round zero of the study where we had hundreds of people and thousands of responses. And that was the basis for us to then build the actual Delphi part of the study and let Stephanie go through all of our thematic analysis fund over the next couple of months. Um, it gave us, it, it, it basically it allowed us to not take myself, Dr. Crow and Stephanie and Dr. Legio's ideas and say, which of these do you think are important? We wanted to hear from the field what they thought was important broadly and then narrow it down through a, con a consensus statement basically by the end of it. So the Delphi is really handy with that because it allows you to build a consensus and to purposely select members of the Delphi panel to try to get, make sure you have different backgrounds represented both. For us, we were very conscious that we didn't wanna just get a bunch of university or college-based paramedic mm -hmm. educators. We wanted people like Stephanie who work for a municipal ambulance service who deals in quality and research. We wanted people who do primarily continuing education. We wanted EMT instructors. We wanted paramedic instructors. We wanted a, a really good, as best we could build a cross-section of the educators in the United States and see how what they actually thought. And the Delphi was a good way for us to be able to do that and get down to a good quality consensus by the end of it. Is it common to begin with the pre-Delphi, as you mentioned, as you mentioned in the paper, you did a pre-Delphi survey first. Is that is that a common first step in a, a study like this? Yes. Yeah. Um, Alex, I thought Alex was going to say something. I saw him, yeah, yeah, go ahead. but he was still on mute. So. We're, we're here so that you guys can, so, so that people can hear from you, right? So yeah. uh, what makes a Delphi study a modified Delphi study is generally that pre-panel um, information and research gathering. So it, what it does is it gives the the evaluators a better opportunity to potentially steer the conversation towards what the original research showed, which is a terrific way to do it. If you put 32 education experts in a room without this huge bucket of information, we're likely going to get nowhere, right? But if we say, this is what a thousand people said, does this make sense to you? You're going to have a bigger success. And one of the things that I think Dr. Lancaster and, and Stephanie was great is that your panel is likely over-educated relative to the, to the total EMS education space, right? The 24 people have postgraduate, post-baccalaureate degrees with 10 of them having some sort of doctorate. That's likely a little bit overrepresented, but adding that thousand plus person uh, or response pre-Delphi group is really an excellent way to get that research put together. The, the pre-Delphi helps you thread the needle between um, between what you think is the problem and what you don't know you don't know. And so having that big come, come all pre-Delphi allows you to identify, you know, quantitatively the people who, who even the people who aren't going to continue with all the rounds of the Delphi are contributing to the conversation by mm -hmm. entering their entering their concerns into that pre-Delphi. And the pre-Delphi question for those uh, who haven't read the paper yet, um, what are the top priority or top opportunities or challenges in EMS education, um, considering both initial and continuing education? So it was like a free text kind of thing. And it looks like you you just spread it out through social media and through you, you cast a wide net um, in the pre-Delphi. And what we're looking here at in table one, we've got this is this is once we've got to the panel, right? This the selected panel. Yes. So um, and tell us about how the pre-Delphi kind of results when you were able to cast that net and get 
um, those, you know, all of that. Do you know anything about the people that were in that you cast, you know, that you that you caught in that group? So in the pre-Delphi portion, we did ask one of the one, there was a question in there that asked if they wanted to be considered as to be a member of the ongoing study panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they clicked yes, we did capture. We do know who was on the Delphi panel. Um, their answers were anonymous to us, but we did know whether or not they answered or not. Um, okay. So and then we used the pre-de- people from the pre-Delphi panel and again, purposely selected people to be invited into the expert panel. The final will wound up being a final of 32. I would imagine that big funnel of, you know, going from pre-Delphi to Delphi was a, a lot of work. Um, how to, how to, you know, narrow that down. Um, so, uh, you know, how many of your authors or researchers are you talking about? It, I love this about the paper, by the way. I love when you tell, you know, in, in parentheses, little, uh, you have your initials, like these are the authors who reviewed this initially, this one checked it later, this one. Um, uh, that's really, really helpful to somebody who's thinking about doing research. Um, to remember that it's not you alone in a room, except how we do doctoral programs for some reason. Um, I'm not, yeah, there are more comments on that at some point. But um, when you actually do research, a team of researchers is, of course, the best way to do it. But uh, so you had, did everyone participate in that, that, you know, data gathering? And how did you even handle that? all of the data coming in from the pre-Delphi. So several of us uh, did our own coding um, individually, and then we did consensus among the authors to make sure, you know, the, the theme, not only was the, not only was the individual response themed the same, like we, we basically, we kind of voted between us. If the theme they thought fell in, in one bucket or fell in a different bucket, we would kind of vote on which bucket we thought it fell in correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just naming the themes. Okay. So, you know, like if I thought the theme was this, like the theme that I picked out and Kim thought it was a couple of different words, we would sort of negotiate back and forth us to make sure that, that the wording of the theme captured the largest bucket we could so that they would make sense moving forward. Okay. Uh, so let's look at these, um, the modified Delphi. This is the participants basically of the study. So, and, and we talk about this each, each month that we do uh, a journal club, we talk about how you need to know who the participants were. Um, and if you have comparison groups, how did they compare? So you can see if they're uh, kind of equivalent, but at least it tells you something about the popular, you know, the, the participants and and who's answering these um, or who's ranking eventually these t- ten priorities. So um, Alex and Katie, and actually Bill Tunes just joining us too. Mike Caduce, um, and and actually Mike, maybe you can uh, weigh in on this. Was there anything that you thought about when you looked at Table One in terms of any surprises about the or anything we should think about when we're looking at this research and consider when we're looking at the participants? Uh, I thought it looked a great study, by the way. I love this. Um, we need more telling us where we need to go in the future of EMS. Yes. Um, so overall, I was um, very happy with it. And I also understand the challenges of Adelphi. Here's, your populations are very dependent on who volunteers to do the work. Um, and so it's not like we can always get an even number of EMT and paramedic educators. We can't always get the people that are like, you know, um, fresh out of EMT or paramedic school who are doing education. So um, I thought the the one thing that I was like, gee, there's several in your results, there's several EDI components, equity, diversity, and inclusivity mm-hmm. of components. And on the race ethnicity side were a little bit skewed to the one side. I recognize that except for going out and trying to actively seek someone, um, that that was my thought. And then I did appreciate, which I I don't know that everybody paid attention to, you broke it down by, um, I thought it was on table one, yeah, who you educate. So whether you're doing initial education or continuing education, because in my book, that's a very different set of people with very different sets of priorities. So I actually appreciated that because if this were just initial education educators, I could see this going in a different direction. So um, more than anything, I was very appreciative that I saw the type of EMS education that the people were providing, that most of them were providing both, which I think gives you a much more even opinion or perspective, perhaps. Yeah. We did try to, when we did the purposeful selection for the expert panel, we were definitely looking at the diversity and equity 
portions and trying to maximize as much as we could. And it was actually interesting. I think this came out during the peer review process for us where we really tried and when we looked at those numbers, they're kind of close to the EMS workforce nationally. Yes. It is definitely not close to the EMS workforce locally for a lot of people. Um, and that is definitely a limitation. We It would have been really nice if we could have found active participants that would have helped even those numbers out a little bit better so that it maybe could have seemed more inclusive, but that we really tried to get there. That's what I got out of it, looking at it. I thought, oh, okay, well, I mean, educators, <clears throat> excuse me, come from the workforce. So if they originally come from the workforce, then I don't expect this to be any different than what we see in the EMS workforce. So, and, and like you said, it's probably regional as well. <clears throat> Speaking of regional too, over here in the geographic regions, pretty, um, uh, well, I mean, I, I would say evenly split, but not, not necessarily the East, um, we see fewer uh, respondents, a um, little bit more toward the West and Midwest. And, and I guess if you looked at uh, Nesemso regions or dots on a map as to where, uh, but that would be EMT and paramedic programs, not necessarily and advanced EMT initial programs, not necessarily continuing education. I, I loved that you broke it down into that, so you could see how many do both, like Mike said, um, which which affects you know what what people are thinking about, and then I the number of advanced degrees. I was going to say, if you go back for just a second, one oh. of the things that I think shows a it's kind of a chicken and the egg issue is that most of our our participants to the end were urban, suburban, and they were mostly um, teaching at two-year colleges. And I think that those two things go together um, because in those urban, suburban settings is where the two-year colleges are at. Mm -hmm. And so we identified that in our limitations was that, you know, we really didn't have, we know that these education deserts exist but that's not who participated in the full Delphi. And so we identified that in our limitation as well. Yeah. I'm curious too. I think in the, in the past, when we talked about Delphi's um, one of our authors might've been Dr. Poncho mentioned that it would be really interesting to do this, do something similar in a program with advisory committees or, or local communities, um, you know, as part of a quality improvement uh, maybe it was you, Alex, that said it, but just uh, doing something similar in your region just uh, for feedback about the the uh, education and, and the impact on on the workforce uh, and the competency of the workforce, which comes up in, in this. Okay, let's move to um, now before we look at the, the table two is very big. So I put it over several slides for those of you who are visualizing this. Again, I would strongly encourage you, this is an open access paper. You can look it up very simply and pull it down and, and read it and look at these tables really closely. So table two is very big, but each one has a theme, right? And then below that you have these sub themes. So here um, there were, uh, I can't remember how many themes were identified. Was it 10? seven or 10 or something like that. Um, how do we get to this? So you, ha you have rounds of the Delphi, right? So your first round is the idea generation where the, you asked about top three knowledge gaps uh, involving EMS education and um, considering initial and continuing education. The second round, uh, you have them, they're presented with the knowledge gaps and they um, do they rank them at this point? Yes. Okay. And then round three, it's the importance. That's where they say something is important, not important. Uh, you're doing the, the, is that the weighted, that's the weighted scaling. Um, and, I, and in round three, I noticed in, in the previous study, they actually did something different. They did actually a weighted scale. They weighted um, based upon importance and feasibility of research, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you didn't do that in this one. You just looked at the importance um, and I think the reason they did that in the previous study, the one on, on the COVID-19 priorities in edu EMS education was because a lot of the, they were, the participants were not uh, educators and not researchers. So they figured, well, you know, maybe we should put the feasibility down to, you know, uh, less important than the actual uh, important scale. So this one, you just had them rate, you know, on a five point scale. 
uh, and then they ended up ranking. So at what point are we here? This is Delphi rounds one and two, you, you do the thematic analysis. So tell us about the thematic analysis and how how you came to these, <laughs> sorry, I'm bringing up nightmares. I can I can feel the tension over um, Alex's uh, I'm wavelengths. Like so in this, Stephanie and Dr. Crow were the main two people who did the thematic analysis. So I'll let Stephanie answer that. Uh, it's very Jackson Pollock. Uh, my kids love it because I have like 50 colors of post-it notes and I have like 10 sets of markers and you know, there's papers going everywhere. <laughs> But it's uh, trying to, it's uh, one of the, one of the methods that we used in qualitative research is called grounded, grounded theory, thematic analysis. And you basically, you look for, <laughs> you, you turn your brain into a computer, you look for um, similar words and phrases um, and, and try to come up with a way to encapsulate that in common language. Uh, Alex brought up before the meeting that there's AI now that will do that for you. I wish that we had that for this prior to, <laughs> um, and, and we will in the future, which will make research really democratized for a lot of people coming in because they won't have to do that, um, you know, brain dump uh, experience. My kids do leave me alone when I'm doing it because there's a lot of maybe F words that come out. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, but yeah. So we it is a little bit. The first round is a little bit Jackson Pollock, and then you know, then we start negotiating with each other. I'm like, hey, I think this comment goes on this theme. And they're like, well, maybe this comment goes on the other theme. And um, but yeah. So it's there is there is there's methodology to it, but it is it is an art and a science. I would say. Yeah. So we're talking about too, um, when you look at that initial table of participants, 30 participants responses. And so someone might look and say, well, there's just, you know, just 30, but that's 30 participants responses to each individual, um, you know, to, to these questions and, and all of their, you know, the text and everything. Natural language processing is what um, Stephanie is referring to as the, the machine learning that we've talked about here. I know Dr. Crow and um, has talked about it, and in, in, there was a paper about the feasibility of using natural language processing to evaluate a number of things, like patient narratives and and other things. And Katie, you and I have talked about this in in simulation as well. But natural language processing, listening if you had recorded sessions of simulation and listening to feedback and debriefings and what kind of um, you know, growth mindset versus fixed mindset language might be used by instructors in, during feedback. So, yeah, that that's a, a promising thing. Hello. Hey, Bill. So uh, my wife uses a lot of it in her work, but you need currently right now to get the best out of language processing. You have to have a huge, huge database uh, just because of the expense that's involved in gaining access to that. And so hopefully academic departments uh, at university research centers may have access to that, but they may also have criteria. But uh, in her kind of work uh, in retail, um, they use it, but they're talking tens and thousands of participants. For, uh, and that's using uh, national language processing bill? That's what you're referring to? Yeah, that's what I was referring to, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, there's, of course, all kinds of considerations, like cultural considerations and what language do people use in, in you know, and, and not just languages other than English, but euphemisms, idioms, you know, all the expressions and everything else, uh, tone and, and all of those things, too. But I, I so there's there's a lot to be done. And in the meantime, it's going to be the Jackson Pollock method, as <laughs> Stephanie put it. So we have um, these eight themes this competency uh, curriculum and curriculum had a few of them curriculum content delivery uh, funding and resources uh, educators students EMS profession and regulatory so uh, I'd like to open it up to our panel and 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 uh, see if you know maybe Alex or, or um, Katie if you have comments about some of the or Mike about the uh, the Findings in table two, when they started digging down on this thematic analysis, anything stand out to you? Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, that some of the the like ethical and more holistic education approaches, I think, are critical, right? I come 
much like Stephanie from, from working for an ambulance agency and managing a quality program. And that's not necessarily something that we have in our 60 hour block of time to recertify paramedics, but to have them come out of a, of a program with, with some sort of, with a more holistic education background, um, that that in to me also makes a more competent provider. I think providers that are more culturally competent are also more clinically competent and, and have the ability to understand more about the why than the what. And of course, what that really does, right, uh, is that that can be challenging as it brings up the the degree requirement or not even the degree requirement, but the fact that paramedic education, especially paramedic education, has to be done in a setting where you can also take humanities, especially the medical core medical humanities. And and I think the fact is, is that that's what ensuring the long-term success of professional EMS agencies in this country is going to have to entail is making a more holistic provider and a more well-rounded provider. I think, um, you know, if you just took a, a random poll of educators, almost all of them would come up with several of the same things. Critical thinking is one of them that they all come. It doesn't matter what level of education the the learners have. doesn't matter what edu- level of education the educators have. That's one of the critical thinking is one of the things I always come to. And I think if you look at the respondents in our Delphi, all having higher degree, higher um level degrees, they sort of intrinsically link those two together. They link that critical thinking to that holistic provider that Alex was just describing. And so they they link those together, um, understanding that humanities and and you know ethics will improve our performance on some of these other things that are are really nebulous and, and hard to define. I thought it was really, um, it's interesting, but it made me feel a bit better about what we set for program metrics, reading that many of the educators in your study also wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, they were making a competent student, but we don't probably have the greatest way of saying you have, you know, we have bestowed upon you the power to be deemed competent. Um, there were a lot of, uh, of themes that said, how do we ensure that? What, what does that mm-hmm. look like? How do we, we all want to measure that somehow, but we don't necessarily know what to measure. So um, it's certainly if you, you know, if you, what keeps us up as educators, it's are our students going to go out there and be able to actually help people. Um, I was a bit reassured looking at all the different themes that said, there's a lot of them that say, how do we measure that? What does a competent student look like compared to what we think they should be on the educational side, but then are they, you know, actually doing it in the field? So uh, that, that reaffirmed for me a little bit of of like, yeah, we're still sort of struggling with what that looks like. I think that's also- really interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go <laughs> ahead. It's really interesting. We don't even have a definition of what competent is. Yeah. And I think that's part of the regional problem of EMS. And even the we're a developing profession, right? We're so much younger than so many other people in healthcare. So when we think of like, what does a competent paramedic look like? We have very like vague national education standards, like they should know about emergencies. And then everyone kind of is figuring that out as we go, it seems like. And, and I think it's a little bit of a moving target because as we get better and more robust systems, the definition of competency evolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think also there's a, there's a consistent voice here that if you read through what the content and, and other aspects of the curriculum, they're all pointing to things that are sort of um, not as well defined. So nobody is saying we want to know how much, how deeply we need to go into 12 leads, right? We, we want to know if Scarbosa criteria is fair game in initial education or, you know, nobody's saying that, but they're certainly saying things about, you know, how, pathophysiology, I think is a fair one. And then behavioral concerns and lots of diversity, equity, inclusion, or, or cultural humility in here and affective uh, domain. So I thought that was interesting. Katie, I thought uh, also you would notice, I highlighted several areas in here under curriculum delivery as to, you know, when did we talk about, was the word simulation used? Because it's so prominent now that as a methodology of teaching that, you know, as a pedagogy that is effective, um, at least in other areas of medicine and nursing research, and, and we've looked at a number of those on, on this uh, journal club, a number of those studies that show that, you know, engagement, deeper engagement and simulation-based learning is, um, is helpful in long-term retention and translational science uh, in, in terms of treating patients. 
but we don't have that in EMS. And so I think that comes out in the question about evidence-based teaching methods. Um, but then there's also, you know, questions in here about characteristics of high, you know, highly effective simulations. So yeah, and you know, nursing has done a lot yeah. of research about if it can count for clinical hours and how what the ratio is. Mm -hmm. And we don't really have any of that in EMS. Yeah, there was there were quite a few things I thought were were sort of um, missing, uh, and maybe it's just because it wasn't. Um, I don't know, it may have been the the participants, or it may have been. Uh, something else, but that it wasn't deliberate, but it's embedded in some of these themes. And that was that question in and of itself, you know, how much, there is something about clinicals, about the value of clinicals in here, which I think is is important. And maybe that does get at, at you know, putting those two things together gets at that question. Well, one thing that I noticed in my career is that a lot of the research that looks at education specifically uses the benchmark of licensure exam pass rates as the metric. And I think for, for me personally, I think that's an important number to know, but it shouldn't be the number to know. Thank you. Um, and I think that's where we've missed a lot. And I think even looking at some of the, or most of the research in nursing and respiratory therapy, they kind of use the same endpoint. Because how yeah. do you measure quality competency, clinical competency in the field post-graduation? There's always been a gap in understanding how do we take somebody who graduated from paramedic school and then quantify their quote goodness six months after graduation in the yeah. There's a big knowledge gap. So we don't know if, based on research, we don't know if the students that we are producing are quality providers at yeah. the end of the day, except for anecdotal stories, right? And that that to me is a huge gap that needs to be addressed. I just have no idea how to get there. It would be great if to do that. Um, and Katie and uh I, I can't remember, Alex, if you and I have talked about this, but I know Katie has uh, the Hayden study that the NCSBN did with nursing so many years ago that compared the um, simulation, you know, percentage of simulation in the initial training, but they didn't just look at, at test outcomes. They looked at, they followed them through and they had clinical scores and patient care scores. And I mean, that was a pretty rigorous study. It was a huge one and it was a difficult one and it involved multiple organizations, but the NCSBN study, um, you know, I can't remember what year it was, 2015 or something like that. That, that was uh, a sea change in, in uh, nursing education. Uh, and it, it was translational science. I took it from the experience in the, how you teach in the, in the initial training, all the way out to the patient care, even out to their work. They followed them when they, in their first job, um, and so I thought that was a, a really interesting one because it's not just about uh, the outcome. It's also about the experience. Bill? So we have an opportunity, I think, here now, at least begin to look at it. You, if you took some of the educational databases, and I'll just use the name FISDAP, and you connected FISDAP with their national registry pass rates, and then tied it into their electronic patient care records, link these all together, we would have the opportunity to look at an individual student over a greater period of time into their clinical time. Because there are la large databases, whether it be ESOs or uh, image trend, there's probably a way to do some linkage or begin to look at the linkage so you could find or follow a provider from the time they enter school all the way through into their practice. And of course, we'd have to decide do we want to look at them at one year, three years, five years out, you know, so there, and then we're, we would need to develop that. But we're beginning to get the technology that would allow us to do this kind of linkage that um, we would like to see. I think though, what when we do this, we're still looking at outcomes that are far out. And a lot of these in here, a lot of these themes in here are talking about the educational experience itself and the access to it. So um, there's a lot of uh, what I would say unethical ways of getting great outcomes, right? You can just chop out any student who who you think isn't going to pass. Um, and you can, you know, be exclusive about who gets to come to the table, and therefore your pass rates, your your all the the end, um, you know, results are 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 what they are. But what about the all? There's so many comments in here, and so many themes in here, sub themes about cultural humility, diversity, access, um, and then the impact 
of that on equitable patient care. You know, I don't see a whole lot of graduation rates on equitable patient care, national registry passing scores on equitable patient care. So that there's the, the I think that who come, who gets to come to the table, the opportunity gaps that we see right now, um, you know, what's that effect on the, on the equity on health equity and, and correcting those types of things in improving educator performance, meaning that you're actually able to handle students who may, who may have thought, you know, weren't quote cut out for this field. Um, and you decide to actually figure out how to um, educate and compassionate providers, that kind of thing. Um, so, so I'm, I'm curious about that too. If we just keep focusing on these outcomes at the end, we miss the process of education in between. And so many of these are, have to do with the experience, the educational experience, recruitment, retention. I mean, you look at the students, almost every one of them is about that. I'd like to chime in on that because I think that you're talking about something very, I agree with you. We look at the people that were successful. Yes. There's not a lot of data out there about the people. So who didn't you accept into your program and why? And what happened to that individual? Did they stay in EMS? Did they go somewhere else for school? To know that would be very interesting. And then the, the students that actually during the course, what happens to them? You know, how many have academic challenges or you find out that it's just too much of a workload? So we know, I don't think we really know about the unsuccessful students because there's been talk and some little research down about who will be successful most likely, but that's the other piece of this that we don't understand. And before I forget about it and run out of time, that's why I think that EMS's education is at a crossroads where I think that we need to why we still produce practitioners because there's a need for that. We need to figure out how we can do this better. And so what kind of classes should make up an associate's degree program or a baccalaureate mm -hmm. degree program? Mm -hmm. What actually should be the classes? Do they really need college algebra or do they need a math class that's designed to teach them the math skills they need to have to do the job? And maybe that's only a half credit course because it's only half a semester. And begin to look at the actual co-curricular activities separate of what we want to have them for their knowledge. Because reading, I, my biggest challenge I ever had, particularly with my students of uh, diversity, is reading. They, they, had, they were challenged by reading and reading comprehension. And I would... I was not in a position in a hospital-based program to be able to give them the supplemental work they needed to get better at being readers. So I, I think there's many opportunities here for how we need to look at continuing a workflow, people into the workforce, but how do we make it down the road even a better workforce? I think the timing of our study was inadvertently helpful towards what Beltune just said and towards the outcome of the study in general, because, because it was in the midst of COVID, it had everyone questioning that same theme, right? It had everyone questioning, how can we do this better? How can we make it more meaningful and more effective? Because the whole thing's broke right now. And so if it's all broke, how do we re-envision it? You know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we got a more authentic or more creative responses from our Delphi than we would have if we had done this study two or three years prior to COVID. Yeah, it would be interesting to backwards map this from starting with the patient and backwards map all the way. I think it would look very different <laughs> at EMS education. Uh, I have a question about the participants here because two of these themes, profession and regulatory, um, really struck me as these are leaders um, in their programs, whether they're a clinical coordinator or a program director or a chief or a captain of training or whatever. Do you, do you have any idea how many were in kind of that leadership role? Because a lot of sort of your frontline faculty may not consider um, things like, you know, maintaining uh, the accreditation standards or um, recruit, well, recruitment and retention, maybe a compensation for sure. But, um, you know, some of these things kind of stuck out to me as, you know, interagency 
communication interagency training stuck with me as more of a continuing ed. Alex? Megan, can we pause just to mm -hmm. answer a couple of questions in the chat? Oh, yeah, sure. That were related to the last two topics. Yeah. So uh, question one is from Leah Tilden. She says, how can we have a standard metric for quality when we don't have standardized education? I think that that's a terrific question. Um, I'm a, a quality practitioner at heart. Uh, that's now what I do even more full time for a much much larger system than just a, just an individual EMS system. We serve quality for 1.3 million residents. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that what matters to an organization for quality does not necessarily matter to patients. Outshoot times and response times don't actually matter to the general public. They want to know that an ambulance is coming. And if an ambulance comes in three minutes or 13 minutes, overall, the, the, the fact is, is that it's a response by an ambulance and that's what the public wants. That matters maybe for con contractual agreements. That matters maybe for, I, I got, Stephanie Ashford always has to put her boots back on before a call comes out. So she, her out shoot times are four minutes. But the 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 answer to how do we find standardized quality metrics is that we have to look beyond the clinical quality metrics. We have to include things like individual surveys. We have to include um, the the provider's evaluation scores. Those assessments of of quality are live outside the bounds of competency and live outside the bounds of did you start IVs in a way that was less ouchy for your patients and did you get out the door door in a, a meaningful amount of time and that's why quality management systems exist outside of just clinical quality so that was question one does anybody have anything else I, on that I, I got on a soapbox and I, fell I have off. to I have to speak because this is my jam also um is that it, I, I do appreciate the question because we don't have a standard metric for quality in our field. We have some, we have pockets of metrics that exist all around. We don't have one place you can go that says, this is what a good system looks like, go do this. And so we're constantly chasing what good looks like. We have some ideas. Um, those ideas change over time. Um, and, and again, we have to look back at the literature. What does the literature say good is? And so it, you know, in the grander scheme, in the in the field of EMS, that's what we do. But also in education, that's what we do. When we don't know what good looks like, we we look to the research and then we say, how do we define good, and how do we get there? That how do we get there is the quality people's job, right? Defining it is the research people's job, and then um, the improvement people's job is the is the how do we get there. Well, we know what bad is, right? Um, and a lot of these are kind of reflecting that too. The the uh, you know again the the equity and inclusivity kind of stuff is is reflecting that as well. So for sure, um, it's definitely easier to identify what we don't want versus yeah. what we do. Yes. Okay, so um, let's go to the importance scores. So you'll see if you get the paper, you can see this big table about uh, importance scores. So uh, that's in the the round three, and then you take that down to the top 10. Um, and you make a mention into your uh, in the uh, paper that the important scores, you know, you, you pull, pulled it down. That was your goal was to get to the top 10. However, they, the ranking was so close. Uh, tell me about that, that the ranking being so close that all 77 were very important. You consider very important. And this is 30 of the research gaps, but. So basically when, when we got it to the top 77, gaps before the end of round three when we identified the top 30. Um, the investigators were actually kind of surprised at how close everything was. Everything was really lumped to right within a point of each other. Um, normally, you would see some pretty wide deviation there, but everything was close. And it all fell above an important score of about 3.6, which you know really makes us think that all of these top 77 gaps are important gaps in our knowledge when it comes to EMS education. And they're all, um, it's in the supplementary, all 77 are, are in the supplementary material on JSEP Open. Um, so you can see all 77 of them. But what this makes me feel like is that they, when they whittled down from the first and second round to get to the top 77, that they were really honing in on, out of the themes of things that, I guess the best way for me to answer this is I think what they found was that there's a lot that's important that we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a little shocking. I would say one of the things that we were 
interested in finding out, and you saw it in your last slide, if you remember back a few years ago, the position paper came out about EMS degrees for paramedics. There was a big back and forth that lasted a couple of years about that. Um, and that was in the top 77. It was not retained in the top on the top 30 or the top seven or the top 10 of these. There were things that we were expecting just based on what we felt as the researchers was might show up. They didn't show up and everything was very tightly grouped. Um, I think what we identified really is that there's a there's a there's a grand size, uh, a, a grand gap in the knowledge that we just don't know. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done for us to start filling in that gap. Anybody who's in the in a doctoral program, we get we gave you some ideas here. Exactly. Uh, Katie, you, you're unmuted. Did you have something? Nope, sorry, I'm just not able to use a phone. Okay, <laughs> I, I just didn't know if you had a question. Um, Alex, uh, you have a question. You want to come live and, and ask that? And then Mike? Yeah, Scott and Stephanie, just really quickly, the, the, the main question I have is the difference between 3.93 and 4.48 obviously is very, very narrow, right? Did that give you any pause in terms of the methodology? Because I could see somebody doing a similar study, getting a similar narrowly grouped mean impact score and being concerned. So for people that are considering doing following your footsteps, what advice would you have? We had lots of discussion about that. Um, and we sort of reframed the presentation several times on how are we going to frame the the discussion of our paper to reflect what that means and what or or what our concerns are and how are we going to um honor the rankings right because we don't want to exclude things that people really think are important so it you know Scott can speak to what the final verdict was, but but we had lots of discussion back and forth of how to how to thread that needle between, you know, we don't want to cut it off at a spot where the 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 difference is so narrow. Yeah, what somebody said was one hundred percent accurate. There was a lot of conversations between Dr. Legio, Dr. Carl, myself, Stephanie, um, the rest of the team that was on the paper, uh, Kim. When we were trying to figure out what this actually should mean, how do, how do we frame this and how do we move from round three with the 30 to identify the top 10? Because the top 10 could have all had important scores right on top, like they could have been equals because we were so close. There really wasn't a delta in our in our analysis. Um, basically, what we that's one of the reasons, to be honest with you, why we submitted the top 77 to JSEP as part of a as an additional table for them, um, because what I think we fell into was what I was saying before is that this seemed like we were, it was a small group, you know, in Delphi, once you get around 30 people, the numbers don't matter anymore. You add 10, 15, 20 more people. You don't really, it doesn't really change the outcome in, in Delphi studies. So we really wanted to honor what our expert panel was telling us and present it all getting down to the wording of it and how to present it in the paper. Um, I'll be honest with you, Dr. Crow did a fantastic job of threading that needle. There was a lot of revisions when it came to that point, especially in the discussion of getting it down and how to present it. Mike? Um, I think it's interesting. Alex actually asked the same thing I said, which is uh, if I looked at this, I might question my methods. I thought of it a little bit differently when I looked at it and said, gosh, this shows us we don't have enough research in EMS. <laughs> um, there's enough topics here that are all really, really important that we probably don't know enough. So I would, I don't, um, I don't know if that's a good answer to that question. I would be like, gosh, we just don't have enough information to answer a lot of these questions. And thus there's a lot of out, uh, unknowns that are out there. That was my first impression when I looked at this many, I was like, gosh, we need to do more research. Mm -hmm. I love that you put in the paper too, that research needs to be embedded um, consistently in our uh, education. And I know people have talked about this for a long, long, long time, and everyone will have an example of how they do um, journal clubs or whatever else. But the fact of the matter is we're not growing a lot of researchers. It's getting better, but we'd like to grow more. Um, and so the, this is, I thought that was a, a great point in the paper. I loved your discussion sec section uh, where you highlighted some of these things. So here's now the top 10 priorities um, or prioritized research gaps related to EMS education. And uh, 
the um yep and uh, stephanie is saying in the chat come to austin for the pcrf uh eso and if you go to the website you can actually um look at that that is a great opportunity to get your toe in the water of, of research alongside some people who know how to crunch numbers and, and ask questions and help you with methodology and open access. Yes, thank you for making this open access. So uh, between this study and the last study, I'm going to say something that Scott just said that um, Dr. Leggio um, said in the a previous um, session that we had, which is these two papers, this one and the one on, on the COVID-19 related EMS education research priorities, um, gives you, a, a, and there's a lot of crossover, uh, gives you all kinds of research questions and topics. Um, so if anybody's out there, a doctoral student or graduate student or thinking about going to graduate school, wow, there's research questions embedded in here and, and people to help uh, with how you want to design it. So there, there, there's certainly plenty of questions. Any uh, final thoughts or comments from anyone? We're, we're a couple minutes away, so we have a few minutes uh, if anybody has any questions or comments. Oh, that's right. Congratulations to Leah Tilden. She got her um, doctorate degree, Dr. Leah Tilden. I just, I would like to comment and just say this was a great uh, paper and I love seeing it. I have to question at least one of the experts on the panel, but that's a, confidentiality issue I won't bring into. <laughs> we don't talk about the participant bill. Oh, yeah. I, I, should I say that as a, um, a full disclosure that I was a participant um, on the panel? So I forgot that I was, was until too. I saw the list. <laughs> because you should always say yes I to research. I'm going to say that right now. We're going to use this minute to say, everybody, if you get a... a a survey link in an email that says, please fill this out. I'm a doctoral student. Say yes. Get in there and say yes to research and fill those out. And don't send mean things because they actually see it. Don't. Yeah, that's. Yeah. yeah. I, I was going to add, I, I, and I, I think these results are incredible. Not all of these are going to require us doing brain surgery to fix, right? I think what you've highlighted is some of these are what we might call low-hanging fruit. There are things that are fairly easy to fix. I specifically highlighted some of the public perception of EMS um, and the EMS education. That stuff's like EMS week, let's get out there and do some public education. So I actually really appreciate you bringing this forward. Some of these are going to take years and really smarter people than I to fix. Um, but some of these we probably can turn around, you know, with some effort and some work and the solutions are probably pretty cut and dry on how to fix them. So um, I would, uh, I'll let everyone else have the last word, but uh, great research. Thanks for sharing it. And thanks for continuing to highlight the future of where we can go with EMS and EMS education. Just before we run out of time, I do want to thank the National Association of EMS Educators. They paid the fee to make this open access so that it would be public so that everybody awesome. in EMS. And that was that was a very, very short discussion with the executive director of NAMSI. Um, he understands the pay of the workforce in EMS, especially field providers and educators, as Stephanie mentioned earlier, the pay for educators in this field and in most healthcare fields is not very good. And if we put this beyond a paywall, it wouldn't get read. So we wanted to make sure that people had the opportunity to read it. And also, I want to personally congratulate, uh, congratulate Dr. Tilton. Um, she may have cited this study in her dissertation defense a week ago. So I'm happy she's here today, even though she can't speak. But I'm going to call her out on it. Great. Congratulations. And uh, anybody who's out there, maybe ABD or, or thinking about it, don't forget, you've got all of us to e email. You did it. Okay, thank you, everyone. Any final comments or thoughts? We're right at the top of the hour. Great job, Scott and Stephanie. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you all Keep for joining us. Thanks. I was excited to get to see all my research buddies. Great. Thanks, everyone. And thank you all for joining us. This is a pre-hospital care education research journal club, and we will be back on Friday, March 24th. The next PCRF clinical journal club, however, with Dr. Remley Crow and Dr. Tony Fernandez is on Monday, March 13th. And if you want to join us live, remember you can register at www.prehospitalcare.org. You can also replay on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at PCRF at UCLA, and we will see you all next month. Bye-bye.
We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.